Chapter 20, Part 2 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 20. The Eve of the War, 1911 to 1915, Part 2. With H.G. Wells, as with Shop, Gilbert's relations were exceedingly cordial, but with a cordiality occasionally threatened by explosions from Wells. Gilbert's soft answer, however, invariably turned away wrath, and all was well again. No one, Wells said to me, ever had enmity for him, except some literary men who did not know him. They met first, Wells thinks, at the Hubert Blands, and then Gilbert stayed with Wells at Easton. There, they played at the non-existent game of Gype, and invented elaborate rules for it. Cecil came too, and they played the war game Wells had invented. Cecil, says Wells, comparing him with Gilbert, seemed condensed, not quite big enough for a real Chesterton. They built, too, a toy theater at Easton, and among other things dramatized the minority report of the Poor Law Commission. The play began by the commissioners taking to pieces Bumble the Beetle, putting him into a large cauldron and stewing him. Then out from the cauldron leaped a renewed, rejuvenated Bumble, several sizes larger than when he went in. In the early days of their acquaintance, Wells remembers meeting the whole Chesterton family in the street of a French town and inviting them to lunch. His own youngest son, a small boy, had left the room for a moment when Wells exclaimed, Where's Frank? Good God, Gilbert! You're sitting on him. The anxious way in which Gilbert got up and turned apologetically toward his own chair was unforgettable. An absent-minded man who, in a gesture of politeness, once gave his seat to three ladies in a bus, might well be alarmed over the fate of a small boy found under him. In his memoirs, Wells relates another pleasing story of a Chestertonian encounter. I once saw Henry James quarreling with his brother William James, the psychologist, he had lost his calm. He was terribly unnerved. He appealed to me, to me of all people, to adjudicate on what was and what was not permissible in England. William was arguing about it in an indisputably American accent, with an indecently naked reasonableness. I had come to Rye with a car to fetch William James and his daughter to my home at Sandgate. William had none of Henry's passionate regard for the polish upon the surface of life, and he was immensely excited by the fact that in the little Rye Inn, which had its garden just over the high brick wall of the garden of Lamb House, G.K. Chesterton was staying. William James had corresponded with our vast contemporary, and he sorely wanted to see him. So, with a scandalous directness, he had put the gardener's ladder against that ripe red wall and clambered up and peeped over. Henry caught him at it. It was the sort of thing that isn't done. It was most emphatically the sort of thing that isn't done. Henry instructed the gardener to put away the ladder, and William was looking thoroughly naughty about it. To Henry's manifest relief, I carried William off, and in the road just outside the town, we ran against the Chestertons, who had been for a drive in Romney Marsh. Chesterton was heated, and I think rather swollen by the sunshine. He seemed to overhang his one-horse fly, and he descended slowly but firmly. He was moist and steamy but cordial. We chatted in the road, and William got his coveted impression. 
The two must have suited each other a good deal, better than Chesterton and the whole conventional brother. Of Henry's reactions, there was a comment from the other side of the Atlantic. The Louisville Post reported that Henry James, being asked on a visit to his native country, what do you think of Chesterton in England? Replied, in England, what do we not think of Chesterton? The Post commented rather neatly, this we of our compatriot must be considered as either mythical or editorial, unless indeed it refers to that small, exquisite circle which immediately surrounds and envelops him. In his autobiography, Gilbert is appreciative but amusing, describing Henry James' reactions to the arrival of Belloc from a walking tour unbrushed, unwashed, and unshaven. After reading Dickens, William wrote from Cambridge, Oh, Chesterton, but you're a darling. I've just read your Dickens. It's as good as Rabelais. Thanks. Wells asked to debate with Gilbert, wrote to Francis, Spade House, Sandgate, undated. Dear Mrs. Chesterton, God forbid that I should seem a pig. Here a small pig is drawn, and indeed I am not, and of all the joys in life nothing would delight me more than a controversy with G.K.C., who indeed I adore. Here is drawn a tiny Wells adoring a vast Chesterton. But I have been recklessly promising all and everyone who asks me to lecture or debate, if ever I do so again, it will be for you. And if once I break the vow... I took last year. Also, we are really quite in agreement. It's a mere difference in fundamental theory, which doesn't really matter a rap, except for after dinner purposes. Yours ever, H.G. Wells. Francis thought Wells was good for Gilbert, he tells me, because he took him out walking, and when the two men were alone, Gilbert would say supplicatingly, we won't go for a walk today, will we? He thought it terrifying, said Wells, the way my life tidied up. Francis, too, tidied up, but cautiously. She prevented G.K., says Wells, from becoming too physically gross. He ought not to have been allowed to use the word jolly more than 40 times a day. He could not, Wells thought, have gone on living in a London which was that of ordinary social life, whether Mayfair or Bloomsbury. Either the country or Dr. Johnson's London— and of the relations seen by Chesterton between liberty and conviviality, he said, every time he lifted a glass of wine, he lifted it against Cadbury. In spite of growing restrictions as to sales and hours, the inn still remained for Chesterton a symbol of freedom in a world increasingly enslaved. It was pointed out to him how great a peril lay in drink, how homes were broken up and families destroyed through drunkenness. After the war began, a letter from one of his readers stressed a real danger. Now I do beg you, Mr. Chesterton, much as you love writing in praise of drink, to give it a rest during the war. You may have the degradation of any number of silly boys to your account without knowing it. I've written with a freedom, you will say perhaps rudeness, which a casual meeting with you and a great admiration for your work by no means justifies, but which other things perhaps do. I beg you to forgive me. It seems to me that this charge he never quite answered. To claim liberty is one thing, to him the glories of wine is quite another. And when he was attacked for the latter, he always defended the former, saying that he did not deny the peril, but that all freedom meant peril. Peril must be preferred to slavery. There were things in which a man must be free to choose, even if his choice be evil. This is part of Chesterton's whole philosophy about drink, 
a subject on which he wrote constantly. It is interesting to note the stages of its development in his mind. The Chesterton family had not a Puritan tradition in the sense of being teetotal, but Lucian Oldershaw tells me that in their boyhood, he always felt G.K. himself to be a bit of a Puritan, and I have come upon a boyish poem that seems to confirm this in the matter of wine. The Teapot Raised high on tripod, flashing bright, the holy silver urn, within whose inmost cavern dark the secret waters burn. Before the temple's gateway the subject teacups bow, and pass it steaming with thy gift, thy brown autumnal glow. Within thy tiny fortress the tea-leaf treasure piled, o'er which the fiery fountain pours its waters undefiled till the witch-water steals away the essence they unfold, and dashes from the yawning spout a torrent arch of gold. Then fill an honest cup, my lads, and quaff the draught amain, and lay the earthen goblet down, and fill it yet again. Nor heed the curses on the cup that rise from folly's school, the sneering of the drunkard, and the warning of the fool. To leave the steward's cavalier, the revel's blood-red wine, To hiccup out a tyrant's health, and swear his right divine. Mine, Cromwell's cup, to stir within, the spirit cool and sure, To face another star-chamber, a second Marston Moor. Leave to the genius scorner, the sought soul-slaying urns, That stained the fame of Addison, and wrecked the life of Burns. For Eddie's hand, his private pot, for no waiter waits, for Cowper's lips, his cup that cheers, but not inebriates. Goal of infantine hope, unknown mystic felicity, sangrail of childish quest, much sought, ethereal real tea, thy faintest tint of yellow on the milk and water pale, like my disdain on Pactulus, gives joy that cannot fail. The reference to Cromwell's teapot was that it was among the first used in England. Eddie, the artist, made his own tea in all hotels in a private pot. Childhood's May I Have Real Tea had grown into a tea table of the junior debating club, and Lucian Oldershaw remembers Gilbert as a young man still lunching at tea shops. I found recently two versions of a fragment of a story called The Human Club, written when he was at the Slade School. The second version opens... A meal was spread on the table for the members of the human club, were, as their name implies, human. However, glorified and transformed, the meal, however, consisted principally of tea and coffee. For the humans were total abstainers, not with the virulent assertion of a negative formula, but as an enlightened ratification of a profound social effort. Hear, hear. Not as the meaningless idolatry, cheers, of an isolated nostrum, renewed cheers, but as a chivalrous sacrifice for the triumph of his civic morality, prolonged cheers and uproar. The aims of the human club were many, but among the more practical and immediate was the entire perfection of everything. Perfection is impossible, said the host Eric Peterson, bowing his colossal proportions over the coffee pot. He was in the habit of showing these abrupt rifts of his train of thought, like gigantic fragments of a frieze. But, he said then quite simply, with no change in his bleak blue eyes, perfection is impossible, thank God. The impossible is the eternal. We are a long way from tea, the oriental 
coco the vulgar beast and wine the true festivity of man that we find in wine water and song chesterton had meanwhile discovered the wine-drinking peasants of france and italy and he had discovered what were left of the old-fashioned inns of england where cider or beer are drunk by the sort of englishmen he had come to love best the poor in his revolt against that dreary and pretentious element that he most hated in the middle classes he had come to feel that the life of the poor as they themselves had shaped it when they were free men was the ideal and that ideal included moderate drinking drinking to express joy in life and to increase it already in heretics 1904 he had in the essay called omar and the sacred vine attacked the evil of pessimistic drinking a man should never drink because he is miserable he will be wise to avoid drink as a medicine for health being a normal thing he will tend in search of it to drink too much but no man expects pleasure all the time so if he drinks for pleasure the danger of excess is less the sound rule in the matter would appear to be like many other rules a paradox drink because you are happy but never because you're miserable never drink when you are wretched without it or you will be like the gray-faced gin drinker in the slum but drink when you would be happy without it and you will be like the laughing peasants of italy never drink because you need it for this is rational drinking and the way to death and hell but drink because you do not need it for this is irrational drinking and the ancient health of the world from heretics john lane chapter seven page one hundred and three but the human will must be brought into action and the gifts of god must be taken with the thanksgiving that is restraint we must thank god for beer and burgundy by not drinking too much of them the topic seemed to fascinate him and he returned to it again and again in one essay he described himself opening all the windows in a private bar to get rid of the air of secrecy that he hated wine should be taken not secretly but frankly and in fellowship as men in inns do dine cocktails he abominated and in fact strong spirits were almost as evil as wine and beer were good in an essay the cowardice of cocktails he is especially scathing in his comment on those who urge that they give a man an appetite for his meals from sidelights on new london and newer york page forty five this is unworthy of a generation that is always claiming to be candid and courageous in the second aspect it is utterly unworthy of a generation that claims to keep itself fit by tennis and golf and all sorts of athletics what are these athletics worth if after all their athletics they cannot scratch up such a thing as a natural appetite most of my work is i will not venture to say literary but at least sedentary i never do anything except walk about and throw clubs and javelins in the garden but i never require anything to give me an appetite for a meal i never yet needed a tot of rum to help me go over the top and face the mortal perils of luncheon quite rationally considered there has been a decline in degradation in these things first came the old drinking days which are always described as much more healthy in those days men worked or played hunted or herded or ploughed or fished or even in their rude way wrote or spoke if only expressing the simple minds of socrates or shakespeare and then got reasonably drunk in the evening when their work was done we find the first step of the degradation when men do not drink when their work is done but drink in order to do their work workmen used to wait in queues outside the factories 
of 40 years ago to drink nips of neat whiskey to enable them to face life in the progressive and scientific factory. But at least it may be admitted that life in the factory was something that it took some courage to face. These men felt they had to take an anesthetic before they could face pain. What are we to say of those who have to take an anesthetic before they can face pleasure? What of those who, when faced with the terrors of mayonnaise, eggs, or sardines, can only utter a faint cry for brandy? What of those who have to be drugged, maddened, inspired, and intoxicated to the point of partaking of meals, like the assassins to the point of committing murders? If, as they say, the use of the drug means the increase of the dose, where will it stop? And at what precise point of frenzy and delusion will a healthy grown-up man be ready to rush headlong upon a cutlet or make a dash for death or glory at a ham sandwich? This is obviously the most abject stage of all, worse than that of the man who drinks for the sake of work, and much worse than that of the man who drinks for the sake of play. Wine, Chesterton maintained, should not be drunk as an aid to creative production. Yet one may find that increased power of creation sometimes follows in its wake. And here, of course, was a danger to a man who worked as hard as Chesterton. He sometimes spoke of himself as idle, but I think it would be hard to match either his output or his hours of creative work. I remember one visit that I paid to Beaconsfield when he was writing one of his major books. It was in his study by 10 in the morning, emerged at lunch at 1, and went back from about 2.30 to 4.30. After tea, he worked again until 7.30 dinner. His wife and I went to bed about 10.30, leaving him preparing his material for the next day. Towards 1 a.m., a ponderous tread as he passed my door on his way to bed woke me to a general impression of an earthquake. In a passage in Magic, G.K. makes his hero say, I happen to have what is called a strong head, and I have never been really drunk. It was true of himself, but in these years, just before the Great War, before his own severe illness, intimate friends have told me they had seen him unlike himself that they felt he had come to depend almost absent-mindedly, one said, on the stimulus of wine for the sheer physical power to pour forth so much. Besides overwork, G.K. was in these days mentally oppressed by the strain of the Marconi case, and then almost overwhelmed by the horror of the World War. A man very tender of heart, sensitive and intensely imaginative, he could not react as calmly as Cecil himself did to what both believed the probability of the latter's imprisonment. And when that strain was removed, there remained the stain on national honor, the opening gulf into which he saw his country falling. To him, the Marconi case was a heavier burden than the war. For, as he saw it, in the Marconi case, the nation was wrong in enduring corruption. And in the war, the nation was magnificently right in resisting tyranny. So Chesterton felt, yet the outbreak of the war with all its human suffering to mind and body, weighed heavily upon him too. He wrote The Barbarism of Berlin, of which I will say something in the next chapter, for it belongs to those writings of the war period, the series of which is so consistent that in his autobiography he was able to claim that he had no sympathy with the rather weak-minded reaction that is going on around us. At the first outbreak of World War I, attended the conference of all the English men of letters, called together to compose a reply to the manifesto of the German professors. I, at least among all those writers, can say, what I have written, I have written. Then his illness came upon him. 
and Dr. Pocock, coming for a first visit, found the bed partly broken under the weight of the patient who was lying in a grotesquely awkward position, his hips higher than his head. You must be horribly uncomfortable, he said. Why, now you mention it, said G.K., like a man receiving a new idea. I suppose I am. The doctor ordered a water bed, and almost the last words he heard before the patient sank into a coma were, I wonder if this bally ship will ever get to shore. The illness lasted several months. We can follow its progress, and his, in extracts from letters written to Father O'Connor by Francis. November 25th, 1914. You must pray for him. He is seriously ill, and I have two nurses. It is mostly heart trouble, but there are complications. He is quite his normal self, as to head and brain, and he even dictates and reads a great deal. December 29th, 1914. Gilbert had a bad relapse on Christmas Eve, and now is being desperately ill. He is not often conscious and is so weak. I feel he might ask for you. If so, I shall wire. Doctor is still hopeful, but I feel in despair. January 3rd, 1915. If you came, he would not know you, and this condition may last some time. The brain is dormant and must be kept so. If he is sufficiently conscious at any moment to understand, I will ask him to let you come, or will send on my own responsibility. Pray for his soul and mine. January 7, 1915. Gilbert seemed decidedly clearer yesterday, and though not quite so well today, the doctor says he has reason to hope the mental trouble is working off. His heart is stronger, and he is able to take plenty of nourishment. Under the circumstances, therefore, I am hoping and praying he may soon be sufficiently himself to tell us what he wants done. I am dreadfully unhappy at not knowing how he would wish me to act. His parents would never forgive me if I acted only on my own authority. I do pray to God he will restore him to himself that we may know. I feel in his mercy he will, even if death is the end of it, or the beginning, shall I say. January 12, 1915. He is really better, I believe. And by the mercy of God, I dare hope he is to be restored to us. Physically, he is stronger, and the brain is beginning to work normally. And soon, I trust, we shall be able to ask him his wishes with regard to the church. I am so thankful to think that we might get at his desire. In January 1915, Francis wrote to my mother, Gilbert remains much the same in a semi-conscious condition, sleeping a great deal. I feel absolutely hopeless. It seems impossible it can go on like this. The impossibility of reaching him is too terrible an experience, and I don't know how to go through with it. I pray for strength, and you must pray for me. Dearest Josephine, she wrote in a later undated letter, Gilbert is today a little better, after being practically at a standstill for the past week. He asked for me today, which is a great advance, and hugged me. I feel like Elijah, wasn't it? and shall go in the strength of that hug forty days. The recovery will be very slow, the doctors tell me, and we have to prevent his using his brain at all. In this letter she begged to see my mother, and I remember when they met, she told her that one day she had tried to test whether Gilbert was conscious by asking him, Who is looking after you? He answered very gravely, God, and I felt so small, she said. Presently, Francis told my mother that Gilbert had talked to her about coming into the Catholic Church. It was just at this time that she wrote to tell Father O'Connor that Gilbert said to her, Did you think I was going to die? And follow this with a question, Does Father O'Connor know? 
After a conversation with my mother, Francis wrote to her. March 21st. I think I would rather you did not tell anyone just yet of what I told you regarding my husband and the Catholic Church. Not that I doubt for a moment that he meant it and knew what he was saying and was relieved at saying it, but I don't want the world at large to be able to say that he came to this decision when he was weak and unlike himself. He will ratify it, no doubt, when his complete manhood is restored. I know it was not weakness that made him say it, but you will understand my scruples. I know in God's good time he will make his confession of faith, and if death comes near him again, I shall know how to act. Thanks for all your sympathy. I did enjoy seeing you. On Easter Eve, Frances wrote two letters, one to Father O'Connor and one to my mother. To Father O'Connor, she said, All goes well here, though still very, very slowly. G's mind is gradually clearing, but it is still difficult to him to distinguish between the real and the unreal. I am quite sure he will soon be able to think and act for himself, but I dare not hurry matters at all. I've told him I am writing to you often, and he said, That is right. I'll see him soon. I want to talk to him. He wanders at times, but the clear intervals are longer. He repeated the creed last night, this time in English. To my mother, I feel the enormous significance of the resurrection of the body when I think of my dear husband just consciously laying hold of life again. Indeed, I will pray that your dear ones may be kept in safety. God bless you for all your sympathy. I am so glad that Gilbert's decision, for I am sure it was a decision, has made you so happy. I dare not hurry anything. The least little excitement upsets him. Last night he said the creed and asked me to read parts of Meyer's St. Paul. He still wanders a good deal when tired, but is certainly a little stronger. Love and Easter blessings to you all. We ourselves were passing then through the shadow of death. Almost as Gilbert rose again to this life, my father passed into life eternal. One of the very few letters I possess in Gilbert's own handwriting was also one of the first he wrote on recovery. It was to my mother. I fear I have delayed writing to you, and partly with a vague feeling that I might so find some way of saying what I feel on your behalf and others, and of course it has not come. Somewhat of what the world and a wider circle of friends have lost, I shall try to say in the Dublin Review, by the kindness of Monsignor Barnes, who has invited me to contribute to it. But of all I feel and Francis feels, and of the happy times we have had in your house, I despair of saying anything at all. I can only hope you and yours will be able to read between the lines of what I write, either here or there, and understand that the simultaneous losses of a good friend and a fine intellect have a way of stunning rather than helping the expression of either. I would say I am glad he lived to see what I feel to be a rebirth of England, if his mere presence in an older generation did not prove to me that England never died. This sense of the rebirth of England gave Gilbert's restored life a special quality of triumph that abode down to the end of the war. End of chapter 20